What's up, y'all? How's everybody doing today? I hope you are well. I'd like to say uh, welcome to In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. Now, if you don't know what that means, if you want to learn more about that, you've come to the right place. So, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thank you so much for stopping by. Um, Today, we got a little bit of, uh, you know, a decent conversation to talk about. Um, But, uh, you know, most importantly, I came on here just to uh, talk to you folks about uh, some things that I think a lot of us are going through. And I want to kind of put a a, a different spin on it, different perspective. So, you know, the majority of us who, you know, I I can't speak for everybody. I grew up in the United States. Uh, The majority of us who grew up in the United States seem to have been painted a picture of what that reality, what that life was to look like. Uh, In my experiences talking with other people, it seems that they too, especially if they ended up coming to the United States, were painted this very same picture. It's sometimes referred to as the American dream, but I think to talk about it in a more in-depth and interpersonal way, We have to talk about the fact that this is the capitalist pipe dream we're talking about. That is hard work equals success. If you just grind, if you grind, you just wake up and grind and get on your grind and just go grinding and you grind and grind and grind as they say, you know, as the kids, they say, they do say this, believe it or not. I do have people on my Instagram story who are just posting about the grind every single day. But if you keep on grinding, eventually you're going to hit a point where you don't got to grind anymore, y'all. You've made it. Now, how often this is a reality, you and I kind of have a better understanding is uh, uh, not very often, right? However, somehow, still, so many people fall victim, are taken advantage of, are exploited by this mentality that if you just simply work hard, you will get to a point where you don't have to struggle anymore. Ultimately, painting... The fact that you are struggling in the first place as your fault. Coming down to the fact that if you don't work your ass off to get out of that situation, well, you're lazy. You're stupid. You're ignorant. You refuse to take the opportunities. You didn't work hard enough. You didn't rise and grind. Well, the unfortunate part of this is that that's not true. And although, you know, a lot of people who have parent parental issues and self-confidence issues have to choose to fall deep into the pit of despair that is the rise and grind stereotype, um, just go to therapy instead because unfortunately, that mentality 
is based on incorrect, false, whatever you want to call it, logic. It's not based in reality. Unfortunately, especially for the masses of people across the world, it is not those who work the hardest, who labor their lives away, who are making it out the best, who are able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. The people who work the hardest are not the most privileged, powerful, wealthy people within society. So how does that math add up? Because, you know, commonly we hear, if hard work made you rich, all farmers, especially, you know, migrant laborers who do farm labor, they would be some of the wealthiest people in the world. I mean, just think about the fact that how, how often, how often have you gone into your local grocery store and there hasn't been food in there? How often have you not had a Walmart or a Dollar General or some other place full of, you know, products? That comes from some of the hardest laboring people in our society, a.k.a. the most exploited and oppressed people in our society. Prison laborers oftentimes are left out of this question as well. We have to understand that it is the most hard-working people within society who are most often taken advantage of. And this is the reason why they have to work so hard. My partner, right, their father immigrated from Brazil. Now, this man is 60-something, works three jobs, and unfortunately also is really convinced that this is the way that everybody's supposed to do it, you know? Without taking into account the 30 to 40 years that he himself has been taken advantage of in order to see that maybe we should be thinking about this question differently. Do people really deserve to suffer and struggle in the way they do just to survive? Should people be forced to work to their wits end, no matter the job? Because I think that's one thing I will say that frustrates me is there's also this idea that hard work is just like a factory. Like you, you think of your stereotypical like down bad coal miners, fucking oil extractors, folks like that. That's considered hard work. But like for me, I have to sit at this job for eight hours straight doing nothing but selling cigarettes out of a drive through window. That's not meant to be hard physically. That's meant to be hard mentally. It's meant to continue that idea or that process of alienation. It's meant to continue that process of disassociation, of acceptance of this system. And I know some folks will say, oh, this poor kid, boo-hoo, I had to do this. You're traumatized, yo. If you get upset at someone for saying that they hate their job because you hate your job more, you're traumatized. Don't go after people 
who also don't want to work. You don't want to work either. And if you do, one of two things has happened. One, no you don't. You're being lied to and you're convincing yourself of it. Two, you're an exploiter. (laughs) You have a job that is more based on exploiting other people's labor than your own. And therefore, you don't have to struggle as much as the rest of us. So, for those of the rest of us who aren't in those two categories there and have to deal with the bullshit of this or that job, do we really feel that we ourselves and everyone else should only be able to have health care, food, shelter, clothing, education, simply if they labor? I mean, take, take the most easy example as to why this is a, an illogical system based on reality. Our reality, not the oppressor's reality, because it's logical to the capitalist. Remember that always. It's not a stupid system. It's a logical system. It's just illogical to those who it exploits. This system that says, you know, only hard work can provide for you what you need is illogical because think of some of the people who have the most needs in society. The elderly, the abused, the disabled. How can any of them work hard enough to provide for their own needs? So what do we do? Well, we develop different things that can help to try to alleviate the symptoms of living within a system that requires you labor your life away in order to survive. Such as, you know, nursing homes. Such as, uh, you know, facilities for um, disabled people to go to learn in the ways in which they need to learn. To do physical therapy. To, you know, uh, whatever. You know, to be in spaces where they are safe and actually provided for in a way that is meant to, like, help um, So that right there is a telltale sign within the system that it doesn't work. It doesn't work for some of the people who have the most needs. So we've had to build safety mechanisms to make up for that. So on the flip side of that, if we want to say, oh, well, yeah, but that's, you know, that doesn't really count, you know, Capitalism still is, you know, a system that... See, see, capitalism actually... See, see, Josh, you just proved your point that capitalism does provide for people. Well, you know, let, let us remember that a majority of these, you know, facilities are understaffed, underfunded, uh, oftentimes closed within a few years of opening, have constant reports of abuse violence, discrimination, and other forms of further exploitation. Let us not forget that a majority of these facilities, especially facilities for disabled and elderly folks, are oftentimes facilities where we put these people so they can just die. Like, think about that for a second. What kind of culture do we have? What kind of society do we have that we take those who need the most from the, the majority of us, who need our help, and we just simply place them outside of society. It's like putting them on a fucking icicle and pushing them out to sea. 
We saw that happen and we're seeing that happen right now with the COVID pandemic. In my state, New York especially, Cuomo lied for months about the death rates that were occurring in the nursing facilities all across the state. He was lying about the numbers of COVID cases of nursing home workers that were walking around untested or simply not being forced to, you know, tell people that they have this sickness. You have even right now, Idahomi, and I'm going to blow up their spot. They don't listen to this and I'm not going to name them by name, but I have a homie locally who has uh, gotten COVID from his job. So his job is he works with, uh, you know, the state facilities for uh, disabled elderly folks, oftentimes ones who have committed crimes, but still, you know, people who need help. He was told to take them, all nine of them, by himself to the local ER to get them tested for COVID. They all tested positive. He was not told that he had to get a COVID test, but he did. He ended up testing positive. So he texts his boss. And his boss says, well, everybody's sick, so feel free to come in. He thankfully is vaccinated and has consistently talked to me about COVID and things like that, as well as one of our other great friends. Um, He asked me, he was like, you know, do I really have to, like, quarantine and everything like that? Because, like, my job's telling me as long as I don't have any symptoms, I can come in and, you know, work. Um, Because he was like, there's no one to cover. So his job right now, there's nine adults. I think there's only four employees who watch over them. There's other employees within the facility, but there's only four that are tasked with, like, watching them. Two of them consistently, apparently do not ever come to work. They call in sick or whatever. They leave early. The other two, himself and another one, are forced to make up this. I mean, this is a seven day a week, 12 hours a day job that he works. And he's there constantly, overnight. Um, So he was like freaking out. He was like, there's no one there. Nobody's going to take care of them. And like, think about it. That's the system that we have. The system that we have today created that entire problem from start to finish. It understaffed and underfunded the facility. It created the facility for individuals such as those to be taken out of society in order to be tended to by those who oftentimes don't really care about them because they can't. They're just simply looking for a job, and this is a very stressful job, an exhausting job. They did a poor job of creating a state which was willing and able and, you know, ultimately capable of... of providing for what the masses of people within this country have needed during this pandemic in the ways of, you know, lockdown, vaccines, PPE uh, resources and networks of safety so that people like this don't have to be in this vulnerable position. And it also created the fact that in order for him to have food and housing, like he has to keep this job. So he's faced with the fact of, okay, well, I know I'm not supposed to come in. 
but I can't afford to not come in. And my boss is telling me that I can come in. And I know he's wrong. But it's enough to make me question this, you know. And that's the, that's the position that it puts workers in. Oftentimes, you know, my sister also works for these state houses. The way in which the workers at these places talk about these people is really disgusting. Um, they dehumanize them and everything. And also, you know, a lot of people in these much more exploited positions, you know, I've worked in food service a lot and retail a lot in my life. You hear this narrative by workers themselves where they're like, yeah, man, fuck all these lazy assholes who just want to sit around and get a check from the state and want to just, you know, be leeches. Fuck all these people, you know, like... I don't know, I've heard state workers talk about the fact that, like, like, almost eugenics shit, where it's like, they'll say, like, these people aren't contributing anything to society, why should we be dedicating so much money to them, when that money could be better suited for those who go to work? This is the way in which the capitalist system perverts your mind, and gets you thinking about things in a very, again eugenic type fashion that you rate someone's, you know, humanity or, uh, you know, deservedness of humanity on their ability to labor as a worker yourself. It's got us playing games. It's got us, you know, fighting against one another. We don't want that. That's not ours. Take that. Get that out of your head. Because This system does not provide for people based on their labor. The only way in which that statement is incorrect is if we were to say that, no, in fact, this system does pay people based on their labor. It does provide for people based on their labor because those who labor the most are the most exploited people and the people who this system is based upon their exploitation and those who labor the least, those who appropriate the means of production, those who appropriate the products that the working class produces and sells them for the profit of those appropriators, those people who labor the least, aka the owning class, the ruling class, they're provided for beyond our wildest dreams. For many of us, simply having healthcare is beyond our wildest dreams. Now, when we talk about capitalism as being a fundamentally exploitative system, what we mean, and we must understand this correctly, is not that capitalists themselves are personally exploitative and greedy human beings. That is an illogical and just, you know, uh, unuseful uh, way of examining this. No, capitalism creates people, right, who know that they are in a better position by exploiting their fellow worker in order to propel themselves forward within society. Capitalism provides for and rewards 
those who exploit others the most. Think about right now, intellectual property patents on vaccines. These intellectual property patents are leading to billions of dollars in profiteering for companies like Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer, etc. Those who exploit others the most are rewarded the most within this capitalist system. It is clear. Now, there's plenty of examples that I can come up with in order to show this. But what I would rather talk about is two things. One, that we must come to a materialist understanding of the capitalist imperialist system so as to, one, better educate ourselves, two, better educate others, and three, have better strategies and tactics to move out of this system. Know thy enemy, right? Well, this this system, this capitalist system is my enemy, and I will be damned if I do not know it. Second thing that we want to talk about, again, hints on that last point there, which is how to get out of this system. Because sure, one of the most crucial things that we can do as socialists or communists, Marxists, anarchists, whomever, is have a clear and concise critique of the capitalist system. But if all that we have is negative examples about why the capitalist system is an exploitative one, we do not have a politics of unity. We have a politics of division. We are dividing ourselves from the capitalists, but who can we unite with? That is a question that people have to have an answer to. They have to have, they have, to have an answer to the question, who is going to help me? Who can I side with? So, the first topic we're hitting on, right? Like, we want to know these things so as to better educate, to better organize, and to better, you know, understand. And that's crucial because one of the worst things that we can do is expect that people will want to change simply on a feeling. People don't do anything without proof. People don't do anything without evidence. Now, that proof and evidence is oftentimes not true evidence or proof, but they need something to convince themselves to do it. Now, one of the best things that we can do in order to convince people to act against the system that is exploiting them is remind them, because people know, they just need to be shown how it connects. People know how they're taking being taken advantage of. People are not stupid. This idea that the masses are ignorant is not really the best language. The masses are brainwashed. They're confused. So because of this, the best thing that we can do is really connect those dots, is really show people like, no, here is how 
why, when, what, and who is exploiting you. Here is all of it. Because in having that round of a critique of this system, we have more than just negative examples. And a full rounded critique of capitalism leads us to a clearer understanding of socialism. Why? Because the actual founders of scientific socialism, the people who have taken these ideas upon themselves and acted in the real world by using these as their principal guiding points, have shown us time and time and time again that it is out of capitalism that socialism will be born. They have shown us time and time again that it is with the tools that our oppressors have used to oppress us that we will take hold of this system in order to rid ourselves of oppression outright. Think of something like the state, right? I've talked about this many times on the up on the show. If you want to go, you know, hear more about that, there's plenty of episodes. But the state is an apparatus by which one class oppresses another. Now, this state, for most of history, except for in places like China, Cuba, the USSR, elsewhere, this state has been used by a minority within society, that is to say, a few uh, and individuals, not a minority group, but a few privileged and powerful people within society have used this system, the state, in order to oppress the majority. So that means that that state has taken a certain form and has had a certain essence, right? It's actually taken many different forms. If you look at early slave societies in ancient, you know, Rome and Greece, uh, there's a state that is used by the minority within society to oppress the majority. If you look at the state under a feudalist system where there's kings, queens, lords, clergy, etc., there is a state system that looks different than the slave system, but it is used in the same way. It has the same essence. It is oppressing the majority by the minority. And the capitalist system is the same way. The capitalist state system intends to bring those privileged and powerful people out from within society, out from within the capitalist society, and place them above those of us who have to suffer within this capitalist society. And so, therefore, we must understand that this state system is not inherently a uh, reactionary tool, but it is a tool that has been held by the reactionaries. This system, in fact, is just as I said, an apparatus by which one class oppresses another. Now, this does not have written into its very definition an apparatus by which the capitalist class oppresses the proletariat class. No. It is not an apparatus by which the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie alone oppresses the proletariat and the proletariat alone. No. 
And so we have to understand things exist within society that have been developed in order for a ruling minority to oppress a uh, working majority. And so these systems, right, they developed in a way that what uh, they were intended to do what they accomplished doing. They oppressed, they exploited, and they suppressed the needs, wants, and interests of the majority. That tool is powerful. And to toss that aside simply because we feel, A, that the history that they have taught us, such as power corrupts, is true. And second of all, uh, on the notion that, you know, this will just make us the same as our oppressors. Both of those are just, you know, illogical on their just plain footing. I mean, how does a formerly colonized person who decides to take control of the government apparatuses in their country to nationalize their resources, to give free health care, to give free university uh, education, to get rid of the colonizers, to rid the country of the IMF, to kick out the World Bank, to kick out the reactionaries, to arrest the white supremacists, to fight the, you know, actual uh, oppressors. How is that the same as those who were oppressing them in the first place? How? How is it the same? How? Because it's not just enough to say, okay, no, you'll just be... How will I be just like them? How will myself and the millions of people within this country who have been taken advantage of, who have been exploited, who have been oppressed, taking power into their own hands be the same as those who took power in order to oppress us? And that's not even saying that, you know, I myself, Josh, is... is, I'm going to be leading the charge and taking power. No, but I'm saying if people like me like indigenous peoples in this, you know, nation especially, like black and brown folks in this country especially, how is it the same if these folks take power from their oppressors in order to rid themselves of oppression? How is that the same as the oppression they were, you know, suffering? How is that the same? It's not. It's just not. And you know it, and I know it, and they know it, And so do the people who, you know, push this garbage, this anti-authoritarian, anti-communist rhetoric, who, you know, either um, historically speaking have, uh, I mean, you got folks as far back as the mid-1800s in this country, late 1800s, admitting to being paid by the police to join labor unions, to join, uh, uh, like different organizations and groups fighting for things like abolition, for, uh, black liberation, for, uh, gay, trans, and, uh, you know, bisexual liberation. Uh, there are people as far back as, you know, the early 1900s and, and, you know, all over the world. Uh, being paid to go to this or that country and to meet with, um, you know, the national bourgeoisie, to meet with the monarchs, to meet with the oppressors and to find ways to invade the spaces of resistance and find ways to uh, misinform and propagandize to even those who are aware of the situation yet get confused about what to do. This is, you know 
incredibly well documented. The CIA, USAID, the Heritage Foundation, the National Endowment for Democracy, all of these different groups and many, many more have been linked to uh, intelligence agencies, have been linked to uh, third party uh, LLCs, which are used as a medium for private corporations. For example, uh, the company that is developing the pipeline meant to go through Wet'suwet'en territory in British Columbia. They are paying through a third party LLC, the RCMP, to be their private security. This system is broken in the, in the sense that it is not ever meant to have been not broken. It's broken and it's slanted in... I, I don't know how to say this. I, I picked a bad analogy. <laughs> the system is built on our exploitation. Let us not forget that. And so in remembering that, let's talk about how we free ourselves. Because that is the goal of this podcast. That is the goal of the class struggle. That should be the goal of Marxists, socialists, communists all across the world. And it should especially be a goal that we are acting upon. Not simply, you know, um, as I always like to say, not just simply making a podcast about. But um, anyways, we... uh, We ought to talk about what it is that needs to be done from this point forward and talk about it in a scientific manner, which I feel um, not many folks really intend to take the scientific approach for many different reasons. Uh, But we're going to go into a little bit of a conversation about what that means and take a look at kind of what it is that I think could be done uh allegedly in minecraft as satire as a joke never in real life of course officer so as we mentioned earlier right folks uh like lenin Engels, mao thomas sankara fidel castro che guevara anuranda gandhi um plenty of others who have uh, written about and developed theories of, you know, socialist revolution, of organizing against capitalism, of fighting for liberation of the masses. Um, Many people have shown that it is not enough to take a eclectic kind of, we'll figure it out when we figure it out approach. And it's also not a good strategy to expect that because things are so bad, because things continue to get worse, shit's just going to pop off. And, you know, even though that might be the case, you know, for example, uh, all over the world, there has been massive, massive struggles that have taken place because of, you know, awful conditions. But like, for example, if you take the mass movement in India, the farmers revolt that succeeded, uh, at least in, in word, they still continue to, uh, protest. They're still continuing to struggle and they're still in New Delhi, um, standing outside demanding that the Modi government actually make good on its word, but they succeeded in repealing the three farm bills that they had initially intended to get repealed. 
But this didn't happen just spontaneously because shit was so bad. 250 million people in India did not decide to go to New Delhi on a whim. And yeah, I said it like that because it would sound funny. So whatever. (laughs) I got to make the show entertaining somehow, y'all. But anyways, um, you know, they weren't going to just do this because it seemed like a good idea. How? How would they have come upon this idea just randomly? So when we talk about these things, we have to understand that action presupposes organization. Now, I've hit on this point time and time again, so I'm not going to, you know, berate those of you who listen to the show often and, you know, maybe want to hear about some other things because, you know, I don't just do this for propaganda. I also do this for kind of like mass education and quote unquote journalism type stuff. But anyways, when shit like this happens, it's because groups of people who all suffer in similar yet somewhat different ways uh, decide to come together and actually take part in practical steps to change the world that they live in. Now, that's something crazy to us because most of us are convinced that it is the great men or the great people in history who change history. But that is not the case. History changes in stages. It takes place at a quantitative level until eventually things get to a certain point that a whole qualitative shift happens. Meaning that, for example, if you look at the struggles for... hmm, What's a good example? If you look at the struggles for um, socialism... Okay, you know, if you look at the struggles for socialism in places like the USSR or China, there were many different forms of struggle that took place. You know, they had mass, uh, you know, demonstrations and what might be deemed more like riots where they broke into, you know, grain stocks where they burned down factories and police precincts, shout out Minneapolis, um, where they attacked, you know, military officials or politicians or whomever. Then you have, you know, you have mass workers' strikes. You have all kinds of different forms of struggles which took place. It was a huge quantity of struggles. But then eventually the quality of the struggle changed, where they began to become more focused, more honed in on what they actually wanted to do. They became organized. They began educating themselves and others. They began trying to develop collective organizations, right? This is how quantity changes into quality. So now, if we understand this, we have to understand that today, although, you know, even I myself do make episodes about why certain groups or certain ideologies or certain, you know, actions are not uh, necessarily practical to our end goal, 
But I do this not as to discourage those of us from taking part in actions in any way that we can, but so as to understand that we must learn from these actions, that we must learn from the way in which people try to liberate themselves. And we must look at which ways work. We must look at which ways do not work. We must look at how it is that people who have came before us have succeeded and failed in liberating themselves if we want to liberate ourselves. That just makes sense, right? If you want to become a good anything, you oftentimes begin by imitating those who are good at that thing. So that's what we want to do. So if you're looking for folks to do that, might I suggest those who succeeded in waging socialist, national liberation, and self-determination struggles. Now, again, this is where it becomes murky water because some people want to go on here and say, well, you know, this or that country uh, isn't a socialist country, so I don't really agree with the way in which they led their struggle. This or that country really, you know, doesn't do this for this group of people within society. So even though they have, you know, taken the illiteracy rate from 90% to less than 10%, even though they have passed legislation to correct their past mistakes, even though they have included these groups of people, which are oftentimes the ones that they are accused of exploiting and oppressing and discriminating against in the places of power and the decision-making in order to actually develop a society which benefits all and not just some, Even though these countries do all of these things, we still hear time and time again individuals, especially in the West, talking about why this or that country is not socialist. I, for one, I could, I read, I read theory. If somebody wanted to have that conversation and you want to talk about, you know, what socialism is in order to get a grasp of it by talking about the different examples of countries which have tried to build towards socialism and learn from their mistakes and learn from their active participation in building a stage for a new reality, we can do that. But if you want to just talk about why China isn't socialist because they don't do this or that or because they use markets, and you think that I really give a shit? I do in the sense that, again, we want to learn from these mistakes. We want to look at these classic and historical examples of socialist development. But again, I've asked this before on the show. What do we gain? What do we really gain by just criticism? We must also develop theories of our own. We must also build upon those criticisms. And there's a lot of folks who do. And I won't, you know, if you're coming on a a podcast and you're talking about all, you know, this or that country isn't socialist, like, I definitely don't think that you're doing the work right. But if at the, and holy shit, am I really stretching this here? Because I do not want to piss off one very good friend of mine. 
But <laughs> um, if you can at least develop out of that an understanding not that we have to attack and chastise and go after this or that, you know, nation because we don't feel they are building the type of socialism that we want to see. If you can at least, you know, maybe keep that stuff to yourself more often than not and use it as a means to learn and to grow and to actually build, uh, you know, that would be one thing. But that's not who I commonly see or hear echoing these conversations. So although I do think that critique is 100% necessary to every socialist system and society that is developed across the world, that is critique. And not for nothing, I would expect that if the country has had a socialist revolution, they have also a communist party who is well ahead of you going ahead and critiquing it. If, you know, if uh, Trotsky and Mao and Lenin and others are examples of the, you know, absolute magnifying glass (laughs) that you are under when you are a part of these parties. I would imagine whatever country it is that you're thinking of, whatever country it is you do not believe is actually socialist, has somebody already taking care of that for you. So let's figure out, especially here in the United States on Turtle Island, how to rid ourselves of our oppressors, how to fight capitalism and settler colonialism, how to rid the, you know, colonial state of the colonial overlords and how to actually build a socialist revolution here. If you want to focus on something other than that, that's cool, yo. Go get a Facebook page. I don't really want to talk to you. <laughs> and of course, that's, you know, mostly jokes because, like, you know, the average person I really see spending all of their time, you know, let's say, for example, going after China is someone who I do not see actively participating in the struggle. So I'm not too worried. But at the same time, you know, these folks also are going to have to be involved in the struggle. So we have to find ways to bridge that gap. We have to find ways to actually practically criticize these countries which are developing their socialist projects today in a way that doesn't feed into U.S. propaganda, in a way that doesn't feed into CIA intervention, in a way that doesn't feed into hyper or hybrid wars, in a way that doesn't feed into shifting the narrative in the you know uh, news and the media here in the U.S. in ways that don't actually harm the people of these countries, because that's another thing. We are for, on this podcast, we are for the people. If you are spending your time critiquing, you know, these massive socialist projects like China, you have to understand that these projects are being built by millions of people. Like, this is not, China is not some authoritarian state like, you know, uh, Hyper Online folks and Fox News wants us to to believe. It's not, uh, you know, this small, minute group. Their communist party has millions of people in it. 
Now, not all of them are on the central committee. Not all of them have powerful positions, but all of them are involved in the process of building socialism. All of them are involved in doing, for example, when they do poverty, uh, when they fight, when they've done their efforts to fight poverty in China. One of the most common things that they do, and this was even written about back when Mao was around. He wrote many papers about it. They literally take people, oftentimes students, and they send them into the rural countryside to spend years of their life there helping the people, learning the culture and the language, finding out what they need, actually practically building a new society hand in hand with the masses of people themselves who need it. So if all you are able to talk about is why China is not socialist, shut the fuck up. You're not helping anyone. But anyways, now that I've gone off on this tangent, scientific socialism, right? Scientific socialism is the approach to socialism which Marx and Engels developed during the uh, 1800s. Now, Many people want to say that they were not the first to do this. Okay, that might be so. You know, this is a, a clear example when we're talking about the fact that the majority of history in colonized states was not able to be accurately kept. The presupposed and accepted notion is that Marx and Engels, especially Engels in his anti-during uh, and what eventually the last chapter, what would become uh, socialism, scientific, and utopian, <clears throat> were the first to begin developing the theory of scientific socialism as opposed to utopian socialism. Whether, I mean, I don't really care. It, it, we're not doing hero praise here. You know what I'm saying? So just let's move on. Anyways. What they did was they looked at the capitalist system in an in-depth and magnified way that almost nobody else took the time to do. Now, upon doing so, they came upon a lot of answers that other people didn't have, which <clears throat> oftentimes came from one of two places. In, in, well, let me say this. Marx and Engels had these understandings because they both actively participated in the working class struggle themselves. A lot of people want to say that these dudes were just philosophers. Nah, they were on the street with the German workers, busting shit up, getting arrested, and getting kicked out of countries. You know, Marx had to move all over Europe because the fucking police were after him. Um... And on top of that, because they were philosophers, because they had practical uh, training in thinking in depth about these problems in ways that the average person does not do. Not because we just simply don't have the time, but because we're not practically trained to do so. So, you know, these people, Marx and Engels, were able to think about socialism in a way that was not only just practical, because practical can become reactionary. Practical can serve to mean many different things. But um, 
we want practical in a scientific manner. So practical, not only as it is actionable and makes sense in the given logic, but also will lead to a concrete solution in concrete terms towards the objective or goal that we are working towards. So what I mean by that is quite simple. During Mark's life, there's a period in time in the early 40s when people just went around burning factories down. That's all they did. They just burned factories down. They killed their factory or farm owners. They, you know, burned crops. They overthrew parliament in like small local, I shouldn't say parliament. They overthrew like small local municipalities and stuff, attacked clergy members, etc. Most of them got arrested and killed. Um, nothing changed. Then in, in 1848, you got the German Revolution uh, all across, uh, you know, the German states, uh, where in Austria, Prussia, and Vienna, you know, the workers take power. They actually, you know, are out in the streets fighting the cops. They're, they're putting in work. And, uh, you know, then from that point, some of them uh, try to get into power. Some of them side with you know, they end up calling upon the liberals and stuff like that. They end up trying to um, get some of the monarchists, aristocracy and others to, you know, come help them out. And, uh, you know, mostly just because what happens is, you know, for the years leading up to 1848, the, the liberals in parliament and the, you know, intelligentsia within Germany was pretty radical. They were talking about, you know, overthrowing the government. And then when the moment came, what happened? Well, the peasants and the workers are out in the street with the guns, fighting with the cops, not the liberals. They ran and tried to get government positions, just like the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries did as soon as they had their revolution in February of 1917. So the point here that I'm trying to point out <laughs> is that Historically, there's been many examples of ways to try to take control of our own destiny as working class people to rid ourselves of our oppressors and to begin building a new society. But there has been one way which has historically worked in the sense that it has actually given the masses of people in society the power and ability to wield and control the state as they need to with the technical experience and the support that they needed under the guidance of a revolutionary party, uh, which has been able to actually and practically take steps towards eradicating and eliminating the issues which capitalism has created and is fundamental to capitalist society. So in saying that, because I do got to wrap up here, I really want to point out that this is not just because I have read, you know, this or that book, and I agree with the perspective or, you know, I'm a Marxist because, oh, well, he, he just wants to be in power himself because, you know, anarchists don't want to use the state and others don't think that the way in which, for example, the Bolsheviks or the Chinese or the Cubans or, you know, those in Burkina Faso or, you know, those all over the world which have taken state power into their hands through the act of expropriating the expropriators, if we want to remain vague. 
um, <laughs> killing their oppressors and overthrowing them and building new societies on top of their dead graves. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's some people who don't like that. And, you know, this is not, I'm not saying this shit because I read this book and I was like, holy shit, this is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, unlike God. Oops. And, uh, decided that this is what I was going to dedicate my life to, uh, just to piss my parents off. No. These things are true because they've worked. These things are true because history has shown them to be. So if you don't agree with me, yo, pick up a history book. Pick up a book of theory. Or get your ass out into those streets and get organizing and get talking with the people who have actually been doing this shit. So anyways, y'all, if you're still listening, I appreciate you very much. I hope y'all are staying safe and staying healthy during these awful times. Um, We're going to be speaking soon. Uh, I got an episode coming up in January with Bands of Turtle Island that I'm looking forward to. I heard back from Luna Oi, waiting for another email from her to be able to schedule an episode there. Um, I also heard back from one of the organizers for the International Tribunal of Human Rights Abuses Against Black, Brown, and Indigenous People, uh, who is a part of the Spirit of Mandela Foundation, who you folks should go check out. Uh, who said that they can definitely come on the show sometime. So I'm hoping to be able to get that together because that's going to be an awesome episode. So be on the lookout for that stuff, folks. And uh, yeah, stay revolutionary now because the time is coming to actually take steps to change the world that we live in. And if you believe in a better world, well, then you have to be able to build it alongside the rest of us in order for that to become a reality. Much love and solidarity to you all. We'll catch you next time. Peace out.